You are listening to Community Supported Radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. Today is Monday, November 16th. I'm Charlotte Peterson, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank Don Adams Antenna Services, locally owned and operated Dish Network Installer, assisting Nevada County residents with satellite television for over 35 years. Located on Jaworski Drive in Grass Valley, 530-274-3709. And Ag Natural and Grass Valley Hydro Garden. Offering gardening supplies, greenhouse, hydroponic and light systems, also organic soils and nutrients. Ag Natural is on Idaho Maryland Road and Grass Valley Hydro Garden on Clydesdale Court. Online at grassvalleyhydrogardenstore.com. Today, following NPR headlines and regional weather, we have this week's water news with hydrogeologist Steve Baker. In an interview with NPR, former President Obama offers some of his most wide-ranging remarks on the outcome of the election and says that Trump will fail in denying reality. We also bring you today's national native news. And closing out today's newscast, we have Jim Hightower with a commentary. At 6.30, we bring you WINGS, the Women's International News Gathering Service, and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines and regional weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. President-elect Joe Biden is calling on Congress to pass another round of coronavirus relief. He also says if a vaccine is approved, he would not hesitate to take it. Biden outlining some of his goals during an appearance today in Wilmington, Delaware. Biden met today via video with several business and labor leaders ahead of his remarks, saying he's optimistic about the economy despite a surge in coronavirus infections nationwide. We all agreed that we want to get the economy back on track. We need our workers to be back on the job by getting the virus under control. We're going in a very dark winter. Things are going to get much tougher before they get easier. And that requires sparing no effort to fight COVID. President-elect said he would support a national $15 an hour minimum wage. He also urged President Trump to cooperate with the administration, warning more people may die if you don't cooperate. President Trump's national security advisor says there'll be a professional transition of power to a Biden administration. NPR's Frank Ordonez reports Robert O'Brien says Biden's team should be given time it needs to put people in place. National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien noted the legal challenges the Trump campaign is pursuing, but said if they are unsuccessful, President-elect Joe Biden deserves the chance to implement his policies. Look, if, if the Biden-Harris uh, uh, ticket is determined to be the winner, and, and it's you know obviously things look that way now, uh, we'll have a very professional transition from the National Security Council. There's no question about it. But his comments at the Global Security Forum stand in sharp contrast to President Trump's refusal to acknowledge he lost the election to Biden. O'Brien said the Biden team would put highly skilled and capable people in place, many of whom worked in the White House before. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. The World Health Organization is warning coronavirus surges that are happening in many parts of the globe, including North America, could get worse. NPR's Jason Bobian reports. The director general of the WHO, Tedros Adnan Ghebreyesus, says the direction of the COVID-19 pandemic is extremely worrying right now, and countries need to find ways to rein in the virus. Those countries that are letting the virus run unchecked 
are playing with fire. He said the WHO is particularly concerned about the United States and Europe, where healthcare systems are getting overwhelmed. Globally, there have been more than 54 million confirmed cases and 1.3 million deaths since January. And most concerning, the number of new cases globally continues to rise and is now at nearly 700,000 per day. Jason Bobian, NPR News. Optimism over early test results of another potential coronavirus vaccine sent stocks soaring today. The Dow up 470 points. That's 1.6 percent. The Nasdaq gained 94 points. The S&P 500 was up 41 points today. You're listening to NPR. A hand tally of the presidential race in Georgia appears to be going smoothly as it enters its fourth day. The hand count stems from a state law that calls for one race to be audited to ensure the new election machines counted the votes accurately. It was not the result of any suspected problems with the results. Some of the state's most populous counties finished over the weekend, while others say they're on track to finish by the Wednesday deadline. The state certification deadline is Friday. The Mine Safety and Health Administration has not done enough to protect coal miners from deadly silica dust. That's according to a new report from a federal oversight agency. Sydney Bowles has that story. The Office of the Inspector General found that MSHA's standards for exposure to deadly silica dust were out of date, and MSHA lacked the ability to issue fines when coal companies violated air quality standards. The IG also said the Mine Safety Agency's sampling methods were too infrequent to keep miners safe. The findings echo a 2018 investigation from NPR, which found that silica exposure was contributing to epidemic levels of black lung disease among coal miners. Mine Safety and Health Administration head David Zetezlo said he could not agree with two of the Inspector General's three recommendations. For NPR News, I'm Sydney Bowles. On the heels of a bankruptcy filing in February, the Boy Scouts of America now says it faces more than 90,000 sex abuse claims. That number filed by today's deadline for submitting cases is far higher than initial projections by lawyers who've been signing up clients since the organization first filed for bankruptcy protection. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. This message comes from NPR sponsor NetApp. In a world full of generalists, NetApp is a specialist. Whether on-premises, in the cloud, or anywhere in between, no one integrates, secures, and connects your storage like NetApp does. Learn more at netapp.com NPR. Now for regional weather. According to the National Weather Service, in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, tonight will be mostly cloudy with a low around 47 on Tuesday, showers are likely after 10 a.m. with rain heavy at times. Highs will be near 57, and new precipitation amounts of between a half and three quarters of an inch are possible. Showers are likely to continue Tuesday night with rain heavy at times. Temperatures will be steady around 46, and new precipitation amounts between three quarters and one inch are possible. Tonight, Sacramento will see increasing clouds with a low around 49. On Tuesday, showers are likely mainly after 10 a.m. with a high near 63, and new precipitation amounts between a quarter and a half an inch are possible. And Tuesday night, showers may continue with a low around 54, and new precipitation amounts between a quarter and half an inch are possible. There is a winter storm warning in effect in the Tahoe-Truckee region from November 17th at 4 p.m. until November 18th at 6 p.m. Tonight in Truckee, there will be increasing clouds with a low around 36. 
On Tuesday, rain is likely after 1 p.m. with a high near 52. Snow levels will be around 6,700 feet. On Tuesday night, rain is likely before 4 a.m., then rain and snow. Snow levels will be around 6,900 feet with a low around 35. And tonight in Angels Camp will be partly cloudy with a low around 55. On Tuesday, showers are likely mainly after 4 p.m. with a high near 67. New precipitation amounts of less than one-tenth of an inch are possible. And Tuesday night, showers are likely to continue with rain heavy at times and lows around 48. New precipitation amounts between three-quarters of an inch and one inch are possible. This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Well, Steve, it's starting to rain. In fact, there may be an inch and a half of rain or maybe two inches in the next couple of days. Um, so floods may be starting to come into the memories of our listeners as floods as opposed to fires, I guess. Maybe that's over for the year. <laughs> right. But the Orville Reservoir is always in the forefront of my mind. What happened and what almost happened. Mm. Uh, any new information about the integrity of this dam? There actually is some information. The Chico Enterprise Record uh, newspaper, they recently published an article that described the Orville Dam project, okay, just what you're t we're talking about now. It was a 19-month study uh, on safety that was done on the Orville uh, Dam project, and they found no unacceptable risks. So things are actually quite quite good. And, of course, if, if uh, for all of those who might still remember this, it was quite a big thing. In February of 2017, the main dam spillway uh, really opened up people's eyes uh, because we realized that if something goes bad on that reservoir and that dam, we could have evacuation orders that could impact something like 188,000 people. It, wow. It's quite quite significant. So, so they're, they, they've been doing an assessment, and this assessment utilized six different engineering companies. And each of these en engineering companies are looking at different parts of the reservoir issue. Some might be looking at the dam. Some might be looking at the spillway, dam's operation, and so forth. So in the beginning, they identified 367 potential failure modes, okay, quite a bit. Eventually, they were able to reduce that down to 129. And then something like 2,000 risk evaluations and actions later, they finally determined that there were no unacceptable risks. And that's where it sits right now. Well, Steve, um, I think about how much effort goes into this one part of our water system and wonder how our overall water supply, especially for our drinking water, has been impacted by the COVID situation. Well, one thing for sure, there are a lot of people that are behind on their water bills because of this pandemic. The state's uh, looking into those details right now. And the main concern is that uh, the virus's impact has caused uh, people not to be working because of our response, right? And uh, how's that affecting utility finances? They get, uh, what they're doing is, 
uh, extrapolating the data from these utility finances, and they're trying to break it down into households. How many households have been have have overdue water bills? That's what they're looking into right now. And of course, this is all happening as a result of what uh, Governor Newsom back in April, when this COVID thing first was happening, he said, "You are not to shut off people's water. Uh, they're under it's it's hard enough right now." So. So they didn't, and that meant that the the purveyors were were holding the bag financially until we worked this thing out. So uh, that's what's happening, and, and and of course, at the same time that that happened, our national unemployment rate nearly doubled. So it was a double whammy. A lot of bills were unpaid. So all this information right now is being gathered, and during the next several months, probably actually in January, we will find out where we sit with with water as its uh, and its impacts from the COVID situation. Well, it seems like our priorities for water might have changed because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think uh, California's water priorities have changed? Well, I mean, put it to you this way. Uh, let's mix drought with COVID. All right. Let's mix in a little bit of climate change also. And, yeah, you get a new look. <laughs> Actually, some exclamation points on some of our, our old priorities. Number one, it's vital that California communities have safe and affordable water. That means a lot, especially we're finding that the most vulnerable are, are, are finding that they have water issues that, that domino effect into other sanitary issues. Uh, more and better collaborations are needed amongst uh, water stakeholders. We need to work on that. It's a priority. Uh, stakeholders in, the, in managing agricultural waters. And the whole idea is let's somehow come up with a way of collaborating so that we reduce the uncertainties of, uh, of having our or not having our water. Then there's that wildfire risk uh, reduction that everyone is familiar with, certainly up here in the foothills. And that means that we need to even look even more closely at our forests, invest in our forests. Uh, it's a vehicle for economic recovery. There's a way to do it, and we need to find that way. And uh, it will create new jobs. It will improve safety. It's good for the forest. All good comes out of it. So I I think there will be more attention applied towards wildfire risk reduction. And then lastly, you know, investing in efficient and effective ecosystem projects. And uh, that would reduce the conflicts. Uh, If if that can be done in a way that reduces conflicts, that's what we want to do. That's where the collaboration comes in. But we need to improve the health of our freshwater ecosystems. So, yes, there are many things. We've heard these things before, but I think we are uh, going to spend an extra level of, of effort and focus on getting the job done sooner. So you feel we're heading in the right direction? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we need to move forward. We need to persevere. <laughs> never give up. This is a hard one, but we're never giving up. So working across the opposing aisles of opinion between water stakeholders and do that collaboratively is probably our biggest challenge. But you know what? We can do this. It's one step at a time. We can do this. Steve, thank you so much. You bet. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KBMR's water guy, Steve Baker. You can email him with your questions at stevebaker at operationunite.co. Former President Barack Obama has a lot to say about the state of our democracy. He said some of it on the campaign trail with Joe Biden, but with the release of his new memoir, he's getting into the details. 
Our colleague Michelle Martin, the weekend host of All Things Considered, sat down with President Obama to talk about the book, which is titled A Promised Land. During their conversation, the president had some words of advice for his former vice president, Joe Biden, as he anticipates taking office. He also offered his thoughts on the dangers posed by a leader refusing to accept the results of an election. President Obama started by reflecting on the country he sees right now. I think there's no doubt that the country is deeply divided right now. And, you know, when I think back even to my own first presidential election in 2008, the, the country didn't feel this divided, uh, what some people have called the great sort in which you have a combination of a political, cultural, ideological, in some cases religious and geographical divide that seems to be deeper than just differences in policy. A lot of that, I think, has to do with um, changes in how people get information. If you watch Fox News, you perceive a different reality than if you read the New York Times. And that didn't used to be as stark. And I think that you know, until we can... Uh, start having a common baseline of facts from which to discuss the direction of the country, uh, we're going to continue to have some of these issues. I am thrilled that Joe and Kamala have won. I believe that they will restore a, a bunch of norms, respect for science, respect for facts, respect for rule of law, uh, that I think have been breached over the last four years, but uh, some of the bigger challenges in bringing the country together, uh, that's going to be a project that goes beyond just one election. As we are speaking now, President Trump is refusing to concede and he's refusing to even to cooperate with the transition. How do you understand that? What do you think that is? Some people are calling it a tantrum. Other people take it a lot more seriously. How do you understand it? Well, I, I take it seriously. I don't think uh, he'll be successful in denying reality. Uh, and you're starting to see a few Republican elected officials go ahead and say, look, Joe Biden has been elected and we need to move on in the transition. I'm distressed that you haven't seen more Republican leadership make this clear because the amount of time that's being lost in this transition process uh, has real-world effects. Look, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We are in the middle of an economic crisis. We have serious national security issues. And uh, as I described uh, when I was elected, uh, for all the differences that I had with George W. Bush, he and his administration could not have been more gracious and effective in working with us to facilitate a smooth transition. And my ability to get fully briefed on uh, what was happening in Afghanistan and in Iraq, that meant we hit the ground running uh, and allowed us to be more effective in our responses. And so it is yet one more example of how uh, Donald Trump's uh, breach of basic democratic norms is 
hurting the American people. I was struck in reading the book by the parallels of this moment with when you took office. Your first months in office were spent focusing on economic recovery, H1N1, remember that, uh, developing the Affordable Care Act. And President-elect Biden starts with a similar set of challenges, a global health crisis, an economic crisis that flows from sort of that health crisis. He also has a similar commitment to being bipartisan. And as with your presidency, it does seem that there is an effort to deny him legitimacy, as with your presidency. And I think that the lesson that some people are going to draw from your experience Mm -hmm. is don't do it. Um, This idea of being bipartisan is a fool's errand and that the only thing that really works is expanding your base, keeping it fired up and trying to take it all. I mean, how do you respond to that? I think it's fair to to conclude from my uh, experience in 08, 09, uh, 2010, that we should always reach out to try to get bipartisan cooperation because the Democrats are not going to have a super majority in the Senate. And and so if you want to get some stuff done, Joe Biden is going to have to work with some Republican colleagues in the Senate. If you start getting a sense that it is just a pure power play, then you don't want to be Lucy uh, and Charlie Brown where you just keep on kicking the football uh, and not learning from experience that it's going to be pulled out from under you. Um, but I think that there is a way to reach out and not be a sap. There's, 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 there's a way of, uh, consistently offering the possibility of cooperation, but recognizing that if, uh, Mitch McConnell or others uh, are refusing to cooperate, at some point you've got to take it to the court of public opinion. The issue, the challenge that I discovered in 2009-2010 is that uh, an obstructionist strategy oftentimes is not punished uh, by voters in the polls because what, what really hurt us was Mitch McConnell... John Boehner discovered that they could block everything, throw sand in the gears, and then were rewarded in the midterms. Um, And so their attitude was, well, we'll, we're just going to keep on doing this. And they did did it throughout my presence. Do you feel that you played some role in that? Is there something you would have done differently? Yeah. You know, in the success of that, not not in their decision making, you know, but when, when in the I, success of that strategy, yeah, when of I being look, the party of no, as as was so commonly when, said. When I when I look back, in my first couple of years in office, I think I had a unwarranted faith that if we did the right thing and implemented good policies, then people would know, and. It, we didn't sell it hard enough. Now, part of it, I have to cut myself and, and my team a little bit of slack. We had so much stuff coming at us at, at one time, right? We had the worst financial crisis in history. We had the banks about to go under. We had the auto industry about to go under. We had two wars. We still had a, a very active uh, Al-Qaeda. And so, as, as we used to call it, you know, we're drinking from a fire hose, and so we didn't have time to do a bunch of victory laps or carefully 
stage uh, a PR campaigns around what we did. So I guess one piece of advice that I would give Joe is there is no such thing as uh, building a better mousetrap and, and people will suddenly show up. You, you have to constantly market and explain what you are doing. Former President Barack Obama with Michelle Martin. His new memoir is titled A Promised Land. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Indian Health Service has shut down the emergency room and inpatient services at a hospital located on Acoma Pueblo lands, according to Pueblo leaders. This comes as the tribe is seeing a spike in positive COVID-19 cases and as New Mexico sees record increases of cases. The hospital is located off Interstate 40, about an hour west of Albuquerque. According to tribal officials, the hospital will no longer treat patients with serious health conditions requiring hospitalization. Residents will have to travel to Albuquerque for critical care. Acoma Governor Brian Vio says the closure is reckless and immoral and points to federal responsibilities to the people of Acoma, especially during the pandemic and says residents are expressing fear, concern, and anxiety. According to the tribe, hospital visits number about 90,000 a year. The leader of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe pleaded not guilty Friday to bribery charges related to plans to build a tribal casino, the Cape Cod Times reports. Cedric Cromwell was also removed as chairman by the tribal council following his arrest last week. Cromwell and the owner of an architecture firm were indicted on counts of accepting or paying bribes of a tribal government and conspiring to commit bribes, according to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Massachusetts. Cromwell was also charged with extortion. The allegations against him include using his position to enrich himself with bribes of more than $50,000, receiving home gym equipment, and staying at a hotel suite in Boston in exchange to contract and pay the architecture firm. The tribe has been working for years to try and build a casino in Taunton. The charges carry fines and prison time. The Little Shell tribe of Chippewa Indians in Montana saw its highest voter turnout yet for tribal elections. Yellowstone Public Radio's Caitlin Nicholas spoke with Gerald Gray, who was re-elected, about his goals as chairman. On November 8th, members of the Montana Little Shell tribe of Chippewa Indians re-elected all incumbent council members and executive board officials including Chairman Gerald Gray, to his third four-year term appointment. Gray says securing federal recognition was his biggest focus during his last term as chairman. We've only been recognized for about 10 and a half months, so I'm excited to continue this work on behalf of the membership and look forward to really making the tribe as successful as we can make it at least in the next four years. The tribe was federally recognized December 20th last year, opening access to many resources, including from the Bureau of Indian Affairs and Indian Health Service, and the ability to purchase tribal land. To provide tribal members with health services, Chairman Gray says the tribe bought a small clinic in Great Falls in July. We have to um, renovate to meet the guidelines of IHF because Indian Health Service will operate our clinic for us, I think at a minimum of three years, and then we can slowly start to operate it ourselves after that. Gray says it's important the tribe eventually offers its own health care independent of IHS, as he wants a holistic health care system for the tribe, modeled after a system used by Native tribes in Alaska rather than IHS, which Gray says is chronically underfunded and offers limited services. 
Despite rumors the tribe would purchase 200 acres for a reservation, Gray says it's unlikely they'd find a single tract encompassing the tribe's defined service area of Glacier, Cascade, Hill, and Blaine counties. Don't get me wrong, under our economic development, we will buy land and we will put up elder veteran housing on those pieces of land that we do purchase. The chairman says the tribe is planning to buy some land in the next month and a half in Cascade County. Chairman Gray says his overall priority is to find new ways to strengthen the Little Shell tribe's economy. I'm Caitlin Nicholas. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Good grief, cry many progressives. How has America turned so right-wing that a flabby, narcissistic, wannabe dictator like Trump was even in the running? But wait. Aside from a minority of racist, xenophobic, misogynistic voters, plus a bunch of uber-wealthy corporate profiteers making a killing from his rich man's agenda, most of Trump's rank-and-file voters are not right-wingers at all. To see evidence of this, look at the multitude of overtly progressive ballot issues that won majority support on Election Day, even in so-called Trump country. Fifty-three percent of Arizona voters said yes to a tax surcharge on incomes above $250,000 a year, specifically to raise teacher pay and recruit more teachers. A whopping 78 percent of Oregon voters approved a populist proposition to put strict controls on the corrupting power of big-money corporate donations and elections. Sixty-one percent of Floridians voted to raise the state's minimum wage to $15 an hour, a working-class advance vehemently opposed by corporate giants and right-wing groups. Fifty-seven percent voted yes on a Colorado provision requiring corporations to let employees earn paid time off for medical and family needs. Between 53 and 69 percent of voters in six states, including in such supposedly conservative bastions as Arizona, Mississippi, and South Dakota, approved initiatives liberalizing and even legalizing marijuana and other drug use. Plus, there were some big symbolic victories, such as Mississippi replacing a Confederate symbol on its state flag with a magnolia blossom. This is Jim Hightower saying, the hope that resides in these progressive policy positions is the prospect that a truly great American majority might yet be forged, not around some mega-politician, but around our people's basic values of fairness and justice for all. Hightower's commentaries are brought to you by the Hightower Lowdown, the monthly newsletter with Hightower's take on what Wall Street and Washington are up to. For information, visit HightowerLowdown.org. That's our newscast for this evening. KVMR's Evening News airs Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. and is produced by Emory Audio Productions. Coming up next, we bring you WINGS, the Women's International News Gathering Service, and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. For Emory Audio Productions, I'm Charlotte Peterson, wishing you a fabulous evening.